Mr. Hinky stand here accused of using the dark magic known as analytics. This here knucklehead has blasphemed against the ways of the old school. This heretic would have me rest my plans. Oh. I say, run them all. I mean, this notion that losing leads to winning. I mean, come this on. This guy used his sorcery to, to force me to make bad trade and give him all my draft picks. Well, I don't know about that, Bob. These analytics fools would have you believe the Earth is round. <laughs> Do you see a curve anywhere? I mean, I'm just asking questions. And now, with the hot hand, Sir Evan Turner is going to light Iggy on fire from a mid-range distance. Commence the long tooth. <laughs> Well, those opening voices you heard were not the voices of Steve Griffey and myself, your co-host, Dave Tippett, uh, chief content curator over at Shades of Orange. I know uh, Sir Charles's voice probably sounded like Steve's, but don't be mistaken. It was from a Game of Zones episode that actually opened the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference 2018. And uh, it was just this brilliant spoof video that Bleacher Report put together that had Sam Hinkey at the stake, this the ultimate, the guy that everyone loves um, from an analytics standpoint. And Sir Charles Barkley was leading the charge of the mob that had different coaches and players surrounding Hinkey. You had uh, Jeff Van Gundy, you had Vlade Divac, you had Tom Thibodeau, who was saying about resting players just in time for this whole thing that just happened with Butler getting injured. So you had all these different characters out there and they were condemning uh, Sam Hinkey to the stakes to be burned for being an analytic heretic. So uh, anyways, it was just a great way to open the conference. That's what we're going to talk to you about today. I did want to let you know, I know it's been forever since we've done a pod that will not be the usual case. Uh, we did debut our website, shadesoforange.us. We encourage you to go check it out. It has, if you think this has a lot of resources, this pod, um, there's so much more on the website itself because of that. And we also, Steve Griffey, my co-host, he has to take a leave of absence for a while. So Senior Griffey will be missed, but where the show, the pod will go on. And I can't be more excited than I am today to tell you about what happened at the Sloan Analytics Conference up in Boston. And so that's what I'm going to do today. We're going to just go through a recap um, from a newbie's eyes. It was my first time up there. I know uh, sometimes people go to conferences and after a while they get to know it and they know the inside outs of what they're talking about and know it at deeper levels. But so many people haven't had the opportunity to go to the Sloan Sports Conference up in Boston. And uh, I was one of those persons and it was just, it was phenomenal. It exceeded all my expectations. I am someone who throughout the years has gone to different conferences to enrich uh, my perspective in life, I'm a film buff. I had a film club with my sister for 10 years. We would go to South by Southwest, the, their film festival, one of the top film festivals in the country, for several years in a row, sit in on panels, watch films. And it just took uh, our film viewing to a whole new level. I have done. I did the same thing in the industry I used to work in. They had a TED Talks type event that I would go to that uh, was from all different facets of society and had different channels of culture, people coming in to speak and it enhanced and increased not only my appreciation, but my understanding of the things I was involved in at the time. And now going to this conference for the first time, the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference sponsored by MIT, it was just, there were so many different levels and uh, layers that were layered on to what my knowledge already was. And so what I want to do is I just want to recap to you some of what I learned and what I heard uh, and filter through a newbie's experience of going to this conference. What I'll do is I'll do it by two days. I'll, today, I'll have a pod on this. And then later on this weekend, I'll have day two of the conference um, because there's just too much to try to get in in one day. But I'll just kind of go through my day and just tell you what happened as I went through the conference, where I went from each panel. And I think if any of you are a Hoops fan, you're going to love hearing some of this stuff. Uh, you may want to go on to 42 Analytics, the YouTube uh, channel that they have, and check out some of their material and watch some of these panels firsthand. But hopefully this will give you an appetizer for what was said and some key takeaways that I got from it. We actually have a curated piece on our website that ranks the top 10 panels. It's completely subjective. But from my perspective on what the top 10 panels were at the conference that I was able to attend and the first, very first panel of the day of day one uh, was ranked number eight on the top 10 panels of, of my listing. And it was building win winning businesses in tech and sports 
with Ted Leonsis and Michael Rubin. Ted Leonsis is the majority owner, co-founder of Revolution Growth. You have Michael Rubin, uh, executive chairman of Kinetic, which Fanatics is a part of. Um, Leonsis owns the Wizards, it's just two these billionaires who've done really well in life. And so they were just getting their pr- perspective on becoming entrepreneurs and how that intersects with the sports world. They were actually interviewed by Jessica Gelman, who was one of the co-founders of this conference, and she was the moderator for this. And the first question she asked was this. She asked, what is your view and how do you approach entrepreneurship? Ted Leonsis, he said, connecting the dots, this whole idea of multidisciplinary thinking, which ties into this whole TED Talks type deal where sometimes you uh, it may be completely foreign to the industry that you're used to working in or the discipline that you're used to working in. Um, but there's some kind of concept or crossover that helps to expand your thinking. And to me, I found that in all, no matter what industry you're in, that's a commonality of all great thinkers and innovators have. They connect the dots. They do this multidisciplinary thinking as a part of their process of trying to understand whatever discipline they're in. Uh, he also said he talked about the having the importance of having data to back up whatever opportunity you're going to take. He thinks this is why analytics is important. And obviously, you got to find the right idea to be able to scalable and uh, be frugal whenever starting off. So those are just some some of these. You probably heard some of these business ideas, but some of them are really important, especially within the hoops world. And you see some of these common denominators that these organizations have. Michael Rubin also he honed in on three things that you probably t- typically heard if you were at a leadership conference. He talks about incredible intensity that you have to have if you're an entrepreneur. Uh, you have to have the ability to learn and grow from others so you don't think you know it all. You're continually expanding your base of knowledge, and you have to be a sponge, which ties into that. Just absorb everything and then be able to filter that through the proper channels. Now, there was one thing that I really wanted to hone in on this first panel that uh, Ted Leonsis goes on to talk about, and he talked about later on why pattern recognition is such an important skill set to develop and he said it's the key it's the key thing for any entrepreneur is this whole idea of pattern recognition and really that's at the heart of analytics pattern recognition it's critical in human uh, decision making tasks that we have we do it all the time we connect the dots we do this quick thinking where we see patterns and connections around our own minds and at the subconscious level we just we start to base our decisions upon that for instance if you're driving home from work and you have several different routes available to you, you may know that if you go Route 1, their school bus comes at this certain time and it's going to stop traffic if you're going through that neighborhood or whatever. So you decide to go through another route, and that's because you recognize this pattern that typically happens uh, that slows down traffic. That's just a simple thing. And most things in life, we have to have this whole, we have to have this pattern recognition skill, and we just innately do it out of um, our subconscious And a lot of times it's right, especially for these quick decisions that we are doing. But the truth is, and he didn't go as in depth into this. He just alluded to some of this. We are so flawed in our human thinking. And so many times we have a hard time distinguishing between patterns and randomness. And a lot of times we'll substitute pattern recognition with what we think is true. And the truth is it's just a randomness that's happening around us um, because of our cognitive biases that we already have. And each one of us have that. There's a Nobel Prize winning author, Daniel Kahneman. He highlights this fact in, the, in this famous book, Thinking Fast and Slow, where he talks about every human being is prone to making serious mistakes and evaluating the randomness of truly random events. He says in his book, quote, in visual perception, you have a process that suppresses ambiguity so that a single interpretation is chosen and you're not aware of the ambiguity, end quote. His whole deal was in his book, actually Austin Ainge, some other people referred to him, uh, this because this, all of these guys at high-level thinkers know this kind of cognitive biases that we talk about and try to guard against that and also try to find pattern recognition. They're all familiar with all these different concepts. But Kahneman's whole deal is you have fast thinking, which he calls system one. Those are, those are automatic, involuntary, uh, intuitive, effortless. The thing about the driving home example that I gave you. But then you also, you should incorporate slow thinking into your process. That's problem solving, reasoning, computing, concentrating, things that are evidence-based. And slow thinking is where analytics comes in. That has transformed so many basketball organizations, including the Houston Rockets with Daryl Morey, who are at the top of the standings right now. And they because they've incorporated the slow thinking processes 
into their organization and so many others across all different sports industries and not just sports world, but the industry as a whole are incorporating the slow thinking model into their organizations. Kahneman talks about how we we don't think we do it. We think we we know everything. It's, it's, it's also interesting. He talks about how the more powerful you are, the more susceptible you are to your own cognitive biases. So you think because you've made so many good decisions in other areas, you think you're making good decisions in every area. And the truth is we're all fallible human beings and we all have cognitive illusions. And um, he talks about different ones. Our hindsight illusion is we feel like our intuitions are truer after the fact. And so we revise history to reflect our beliefs in light of actually what happened. He talks about a narrative fallacy. We often create flawed stories to shape our views of the world and expectations of the future. So we project onto people, whether it's in the political realm or in the sports realm or whatever else, we project onto people the things we want to see in them. Uh, He talks about the validity illusion. We often base the validity of a judgment on a subjective experience. He says confidence is never a measure of accuracy. And really, that's the reason all these analytics guys exist is to try to prevent some of these errors, to um, slow down the system. You got to recognize the signs first that you're in a cognitive minefield, that there are things that people are used to. That's why scouts mess up sometimes, even though their intuition is right a lot of the time. Uh, The data helps to validify whether or not their intuition is right or not. It helps them to reinforce the system, to know through the data what's true and what's not true. And I just, I know this is a rabbit trail, but to me, it hits at the heart of why analytics are so important. I've heard other industry leaders say uh, this whole idea of pattern recognition is extremely important. It's something that I'm starting to try to practice even in my own life of slow down thinking, think like a statistician, weigh probabilities when I'm making big decisions. I've gone as far to deconstruct some of my own deeply cherished ideas and beliefs in order to ensure that my cognitive biases, what I'm familiar with, isn't tainting or distorting my own perception of reality. And it's just a good practice to have. That's part of the reason why I was so excited about this conference is it helps a person to do this, especially within the realm of sports or basketball in particular. But this conference, what it did is it not only educated, but it, it takes a step back. It asks the bigger picture type of questions related to sports It begins some of these deconstructing processes and then begins reconstructing some of those same questions. And a lot of times you come to where where the prevalent wisdom is already, but at least you know you've gotten there using good data. Um, It's such a great practice to incorporate to anyone's life, in my opinion, for a deeper, fuller, truer existence. And really, that's where I told you we debuted this website shadesoforange.us and that's all one word www.shadesoforange.us it's that's what we do that's what the whole purpose of the website is to provide a multiplicity of perspectives nuanced takes pods various angles to see whatever subject you're diving deep into from different angles if you're just a listener to this pod and you haven't checked out a website i encourage you to go to www.shadesoforange.us Check us out. It's a good place to uh, begin that practice. Well, I'll, I'll continue on. I know that's a huge rabbit trail. I promise not to get on off on any more on this recap, but I felt like that what Ted Leonis said there really laid the foundation for this entire conference and why uh, this conference is important. They went on to ask both of the guys about risk and reward, how entrepreneurs are inherent risk takers. Michael Rubin made the interesting point about uh, the whole nature versus nurture argument. He believes that it's a nature thing within entrepreneurs, just like athletes are born with certain athletic gifts and talents at a phenomenal level. He believes that all the great entrepreneurs are born inherently with that. And now, obviously, it is somewhat of a paradox because he is a sponge. He's a learner. He, that's what he's been known for. But that's what he feels. Ted Leonis, he was talking about he used the analogy of a jockey and a horse. He felt like the jockey is more important. And uh, he's just really keen. He says he over indexes on the people side of things. So whenever the numbers, he uses the example of John Wall going out, even though the numbers say that their team is a lot better with him and all the analytics would say they would, they were going to struggle. Obviously the wizards have been doing phenomenal and to the point where people are questioning kind of crazily whether or not the wizards are a better team without wall now. But he says it was the people side that them digging in that what's on the inside of them that caused them to come together as a team and to step up. It's really the essence of the drama of sports is where the underdog comes into play in sports and and competitive outcomes. And he says, so when he's looking for 
anything within an organization, he'll always over-index on the people side because he believes that's what ultimately puts you over the top in business and in life. Uh, one last predictive point that I just want to pull from this particular panel was that uh, Leonsis, he also, again, Leon, I keep quoting, going back to him, but I just, after hearing him speak, I have a huge respect for him and his perspective. But he made the point that, and this was a predictive point that he was making, that 10 years from now, he believed indoor sports will overtake outdoor sports, that they're on the ascendancy and outdoor sports are descending. Uh, he talked about the controlled environment of the indoor sports and how one of the things he was talking about, how, how young people play video games and they went into esports a little bit and talked about that. But he said that gaming and gambling, they're more accepted within Europe and it's working its way over here to the U.S. And that all our games will eventually look like a digital game. So that's really conducive to things like NBA basketball or hockey or uh, he is invested in a lot of arena football teams. He believes actually esports will be the biggest industry in a couple decades from now and even bigger than sports itself. Uh, Michael Rubin did disagree with him in that, but they both came to the conclusion that uh, there's so many opportunities within sports entrepreneurship today. There's so many disruptors happening within the industry, and it'll be massively different 10 years from now uh, than what it is today. And there's never been a better opportunity to jump in some shape or form into this industry. So anyways, if you are interested at all in entrepreneurship or in the sports industry or the intersection of both. This was a fascinating panel. Number eight on my list of, of top 10 panels that was at the Sloan Sports Conference this past year. The next panel I attended was How Legal Gambling Changes Sports, Contemplating a Post-Christie versus NCAA World. It was actually number six on the top 10 panels uh, that I went to. This was a fascinating panel, partly because of who they had on the panel itself. It was a pretty prestigious group. You had Ted Olson, who uh, is famous for the Bush v. Gore decision. He's argued, I think it's, uh, what did they say, 63 cases in front of the Supreme Court, the same-sex marriage case, the Citizens United case. He's also served as Solicitor General. He's the one who argued this case in front of the Supreme Court, uh, the Christie versus NCAA. You had Daniel Wallach, who's has been named one of the top 50 must follow sports business Twitter accounts by Forbes the past three years. He's one of the most sought after legal voices uh, related to sports law and sports gambling. You had Layla Mentes, which is the deputy president of Sports Radar, which is huge. They The company has 35 offices in 24 countries around the world. It's the official data provider of uh, sports federations like the NFL, NBA, NHL, NASCAR. You had Jeff Ma, who is the senior director of analytics at Twitter. And he also was one of the infamous MIT blackjack team that uh, that the bringing down the house that best-selling book was was based upon. You have Chad Millman, who was head of the Action Network, um, launched in October of 2017, which focuses on delivering premium content and analytics to the invested sports fan. So they begin this panel by talking to Ted Olson about the case that he brought on behalf of Governor Christie, on behalf of uh, New Jersey, for revitalizing Atlantic City. They talked about how the this industry is a $200 billion industry, um, but 96 to 97% of it is illegal. That's not done in Nevada. And part of this whole case involves the power of the federal government versus the power of the states. How can the powers of the states and the federal government, how they're allocated and applied in intercommerce situations? And that's the Supreme Court, they talked about how they take 9,000 positions are filed every year, and they take about 75 of them. It takes at least four justices to take a case, and they decided to take this case, which all the legal prognosticators they say, if you read the tea leaves, it looks like there's a good chance that this will go in favor of Christie and the state of New Jersey and ultimately bring legalized gambling to the rest of the states in the United States. Um, Jeff Ma, he made an interesting point, the Twitter guy, he made an interesting point that there's paradigm shift that's happening with millennials. They don't like to watch long form stuff, just like they don't like to read as much long form stuff, but they they love the short form stuff. And they say one of the biggest combatants to that is gambling <laughs> because uh, consumption habits change. You know, people don't want to watch a three and a half hour football game or whatever, but if they're really invested in them because of monetary outcomes, they'll be a lot more attentive to not only NFL games, but obscure basketball games and soccer games and so on because they'll have invested in it. Chad Millman, the moderator, he also asked Layla Mintes, who uh, works for Sports Radar, uh, who has relationships all across the globe with gambling, 
about their relationship in Europe and beyond and how it's worked as far as integrity fees. The NBA has proposed a 1% integrity fee if this happens. She says that they have all different models around the globe, um, places like Australia. You have to get permission from the league. And they say part of that's just because which games are going to be more likely to be manipulated. They negotiate a revenue back to the leagues. Uh, The league is invested in the whole process of keeping this due diligence so that there's not um, any kind of bad happenings behind the scenes uh, influencing games. In the UK, she talked about how you don't have a fee, but there is a gambling commission there. It just depends. She felt like from her perspective, a centralized monitoring system is important uh, just because if you were to have, and this is where they got into a lot of back and forth. Uh, Dan Wallach was in favor of this as well. He says that, you know, Australia, France, they have, revenue sharing and there's nothing controversial about the idea. He said 1% will cut in to 20% of the bookmakers revenue. But Jeff Ma was saying he thought that was short-sighted. He thought it would disadvantage the gaming industry itself. Bookmakers would have to go against black markets. They would have to cut into their percentages. And um, he said it's a good, what needs to happen is that we, they need to look at what's happened with marijuana in the States of Colorado and Washington and how it's affected the black market there and the seller's of marijuana there. So I felt like his point was valid. If you put too much pressure on the bookmakers, you can't compete with the offshore black markets. But he did. I, I disagreed with him and Ted Olson on this. It was interesting. He talked about he felt like it was better to regulate it at a state level because he felt like if you get the federal level, you get one out of one chance of getting it right and they may screw it all up, which was Ted Olson's also political philosophy. Just the whole lack of belief in the federal government and just skeptical that they can do anything right. So he says, I, I would bet, rather bet that you have 50 states that you get a lot of them that get it right. Dan Wallach countered back with there's nothing greedy about content creation. The biggest barrier to entry is more to casinos. Um, they have a monopoly on this. And that in order for Internet gambling needs to happen, which doesn't mean even if this case was overturned, that that will happen right away. But his whole point was that basically it would be like having 50 stock markets. So you'd have all different types of regulations that happened. And Layla Mentes also made the point. She said that there's one law that's already making its um, way through the state legislation based upon their belief that this uh, Supreme Court ruling will overturn the current law. But their state law would say that you would have to have a 36% taxes for bookmakers and a $10 entry fee, which really would just blow up bookmakers and you wouldn't be able to do business in that state. And so in order to have a fair taxes and it's not onerous to bookmakers and this whole offline debate that everyone was talking about, she felt like there needed to be more of a centralized or that that would be a good thing for the U.S. Fascinating conversation. It will be interesting because the, the reason this will affect the NBA, it will affect all the sports industries, uh, depending on what happens in the Supreme Court case. So be sure to keep an eye on that as that will come late spring, maybe Mayish or June or somewhere in that time frame. The next panel that I went to was an NBA specific panel. It was called NBA 2.0 Rules to Transform the Game. It was actually number four on my top 10 list of, of panels at the conference itself. It was a phenomenal panel. It, it, it included five fantastic basketball minds. Uh, some of the names you may not know, they're not well known to the average NBA fan, uh, but they are known throughout the front offices of the NBA for their foresight and insight into the game itself. Kevin Arnovitz was the moderator. He writes for ESPN about the NBA. You had Ben Falk, who served as vice president of basketball strategy for the 76ers from 2014 to 16. He now has a prestigious website, but it's called Cleaning Glass that pretty much all the industry people read. Raphael Stone, he's the general counsel of the Houston Rockets and helps in a lot of the team operations and team building. Um, You also had Evan Wash. He's the senior vice president of basketball strategy and analytics at the NBA itself. And then you had Mike Zarin, who's the Celtics assistant general manager and team counsel. He's well-renowned within the analytics community for a lot of what him and Daryl Morey have done and, and is just known for his wise Thoughts according to analytics. Arnovitz started off by asking the, this question. He said, the NBA is going great. Why brew up some new Coke when the formula is working? And Evan Wash from the NBA, he said, you know, it was, I thought it was a great response. He said, a lot of industries, when things are going well, that's the time to innovate. So we should always be looking to improve and innovate. Falk jumped in on the conversation. He says, think about it. That's how we got here. Think about the NBA and why it's so popular. 
First, it's because it's a lot because of these this innovation that's done from bringing in the three point line to the adaptation of the hand checking rule, all the different rules. If you go back through the history of the NBA and you see how its popularity has grown, there has been um, some cause and effect with all of that. And so you need to keep refining it, keep improving it. Arnovitz did make a really good point. I thought he said a lot of times when you're having these conversations, you can divide these kind of rule change ideas into three categories. One, rules that make the game more fun. So just better fan experience, fun to watch. Two, rules that make the game more safe. So safer for players, um, for the participants in it. And then three, rules that make the game more fair. So anywhere where there's just that whole justice, fairness argument going on within the game itself. And so you're always looking within those three categories. And one of those categories that talks about fairness uh, is that whole playoff change proposal that has been kicked around lately and that Adam Silver uh, alluded to uh, the possibility of one day. Mike Zarin, he's not a fan of it. For one, it goes back to the whole safe thing about making it uh, for the players. You have these three different levers and they have to work together, he felt. He had said he cited some study where there would, there would be an additional 30,000 miles added on average to the playoffs as a whole uh, for travel for players, which would affect them. And then there could be some years, outlier years, where you could have up to 50,000 more miles as a result of the new proposal. And his whole deal, too, is that he felt like it would have diminishing returns because it would diminish current rivalries. And you would also have fewer teams in contention uh, for one line of getting into the playoffs. Um, Evan Wash countered a little bit. He says, you know, how these things happen, it does matter. He said the safety issue is important and it needs to be fair. And he did say all three of these things have to work together to produce something better. He did say, though, that Adam Silver has also said it's about ensuring that the best teams play as late as possible. So he just threw out the idea that you could do something like come conference final time. uh, You could mix it up where these teams get to play across conferences for that. There's just a lot of different. um, He was talking about there's a lot of different ways to do this. Raphael Stone threw in there. He says, what you could do is you could allow the top teams to choose who their opponents are. He felt like this would solve all of Mike Zarin's concerns and that the G League does it this way and that we should be doing it throughout the playoffs. I personally like this playoff discussion. It's something they didn't go too deep into, but I like the whole idea of mixing it up one through 16, still having Eastern and Western conferences, the top eight in each get in. But you have a play-in tournament of seven through ten to try to get in maybe the winners of the Eastern Western conference, get the first two picks in the second round as a reward as well. And then I would like on top of that, a lottery tournament where you have 11 through 15 of each conference. It's a 10 team tournament. Maybe the top two get the top two picks in the draft if, if they end up winning the tournament. So it keeps that interest of um, the whole tanking thing trying to go away. There's a lot of different ways to do this. I know the NBA is trying with next year, the reduced odds for the ping pong balls. There's so many different proposals out there. We will have a curated piece on this in the near distant future on uh, all these different playoff ideas. And so that you can look at that and kind of delve dive deep into, to what the possibilities are there, but there's interesting things being kicked around at NBA level. And that was one of the insightful things to me is just the constant interplay with analytics and analyzing and doing the slow thinking that we talked about earlier that's going on at the NBA level, trying to keep the integrity of the game, trying to keep these three levers, the fairness lever, safe lever, and then also the fun lever, just trying to keep all those things in balance. More than anything, that's what this panel demonstrated to me as you heard them talk further and deeper into these subjects. Raphael Stone, he threw out an idea. They were just kicking around different ideas of different rules He likes the idea of more full-court press in the NBA, so maybe a six-second count instead of an eight-second half-court violation. Evan Wash from the NBA front office, he cited three things that fans don't like. They've done studies on this, and the three things are timeouts, instant replays, and free throws. And obviously, you have have to have your sponsors, so timeouts are going to continue, even though the NBA has refined that and I think done a better job this year with that. Instant replay, they can keep refining it. Partly, but it's only going to cut out a little bit of that dead time in the game. Free throws is really where they have the greatest opportunity to change how the game works. And the truth is, he pointed out that right now there's only an average of two minutes of instant replay during a game time. And there's 20 minutes a game of players shooting free throws. So he said you could do all kinds of different things have been kicked around. You could make a free throw shot worth two points and only shoot one free throw if it's a two point shot or three, worth three points if it's a three point shot. 
And then to guard against teams fouling on purpose bad shooters towards the end, you could revert back to the old system in the last two minutes or whatever. There's a lot of different things that can help change that. But one thing that Kevin Arnovitz pointed out is that people always tune in for the exceptional. And when you're thinking about your next generation, the millennials coming up too, why you want to keep the integrity of a game, you also want to think about how can the game improve and continue to be exceptional and keep uh, the, the one of the things they talked about a lot was the flow of the game. That's where the free throw part is, where the NBA has done a better job of that. There was a, a study years ago that Wall Street Journal did on the NFL. I don't have it directly in front of me, but it was something like there was 10 minutes of actual um, once the ball is snapped, actual playtime in the NFL for a three and a half hour game that you watch because so many times the clock's running when they're in the huddle or stops when it goes out of bounds and so forth. And uh, just there's just not a lot of action. That's partly why I became such a huge soccer fan was there was a lot more action going on. It's the same within the NBA. And I think that's what is making this a global game is because of the flow and the continual excellence that's being demonstrated and actual competition that's going on. Not all the interludes that you have within the baseball, MLB or NFL. If you're a baseball or football fan, that's great. It's just uh, the new generation does like things, I think, a little faster, uh, a little more exciting. And they, that's part of what they were talking about was in this, the whole flow proposals. Ben Falk made the point that you should never reward, uh, foul should never be reward for defense. So as as that goes within the flow, they need to think about incentives to take that away. Evan Wash made the interesting point that this year there's about 27 of 28 three-pointers attempted league-wide, and the Rockets are averaging somewhere in that 43, 44 range. But three years ago, the Rockets led the league at 27 to 28 three-pointers per game. Um, so the league is obviously expanding, and, and the average back then three years ago was only 18 three-pointers per game uh, for all NBA teams. Some people were concerned, is there too many threes? Is it spreading the game too much? Uh, he said, if you know, if it gets up to 75 shots a game, yeah, then you have a problem. But right now, you look at it, and it's actually allowed for more shots at the rim and spread the floor so that there's more spacing so that you can see the great players demonstrate things like crossovers or moves or passing or so on. Ben Falk was making that point and that it's really um, actually added to the game and the popularity of the game from all the studies they've done. Arnovitz asked, do teams have a, NBA teams have a dog in the fight in the one-and-done debate? Uh, Raphael Stone, he said, we care but not a ton. Anytime a rule changes, it does have ramifications, so you have to think through it. Falk was talking about how it will affect scouting budgets, and it's tougher for to go to high school gyms for scouts to try to gauge the high school development. It's a lot more difficult if that happens. You had the debate on whether or not the draft should come after free agency, and it was mixed returns on that one as well. Uh, you have things like calendar issue, the CBA, summer league, international competitions they were talking about. But uh, Mike Zarin was really for it. He said Austin Ainge has convinced him that changed his mind that this is a great idea, um, that sometimes you need to leave cap space open on draft night because you're trying to get a free agent. If the free agency period came before draft, it would really help uh, with all the plannings because they all intersect with each other and affect one another in that. They talked about scarcity, about numbering games, shortening games. Evan Walsh, he didn't think that, you know, because they said there's 18 Sundays in the NFL, which makes it a must-see event. He doesn't think going from 82 to 66 will change that. And obviously the NBA is not in favor of that. Also on the other end of going up to 100 games, there's not a demand for that. Plus they couldn't, even in arenas, just logistically and functionally, a lot of these arenas couldn't squeeze in 100 games without what they've subletted out to other events that go on within the arenas that are being played, that the games are being played. Um, they did think that maybe some kind of tournament thing would be an ideal solution for helping to generate more interest as must-see events for the NBA. They finished it off with asking how do you accommodate hardcore fans' uh, loyalty with tradition and then the, the balance of that and innovation. And Mike Zarin went in and talked about how difficult it was, talking about an example with Red Arbach. Uh, but Evan Walsh had the a most pertinent point, I thought. He said it's all about incrementalism. If we only cater to the core fans, uh, we wouldn't grow. But if we made radical changes, we would lose the core fans. It's all about finding balance. And I think it was Falk who made the point also that really a lot of these core fans embrace the changes because they've been good changes within the NBA as well. So anyways, a fascinating discussion. If you get a chance, you need to check that one out. The next panel I went to, it didn't make my top 10 list, but it is. It's a new, it's new for me. It's eSports. 
and ownership within esports. You had Kirk Lakeup from the the Warriors, the owner's son. You had another guy who's endemic uh, to the industry itself. Uh, Carlos was his name. And then you had someone from the craft group. I actually came in a few minutes late to this panel. But uh, they all were talking about the possibilities and where esports is now and how all these different sports franchises are pushing it into this industry. It's a really interesting watch if you if you have a few minutes to watch that one. Right now, the market is bigger in Europe, uh, but it is coming over to the U.S. And like I said, in that from that first panel, some people believe that this will be even bigger than the uh, NBA and NFL in the next decade or two to come. And uh, they just went into all the different facets of that from analytics to player salaries to sponsorships, how teams are actually starting to get sponsors, the traditional sponsors, um, just all those different questions about it. Another panel that I went to was only 30 minute panel after that. It was actually related to soccer. It was FC Barcelona pioneering a new field of analytics. As I mentioned, I'm a huge soccer fan, but I do think there's some crossover between these two sports and Barcelona's on the leading cutting edge of this whole industry. One thing that was consistently talked about, and I'll mention it tomorrow some, but was that your values drive the whole analytics. So it's not the other way around. Obviously, you have to see if you have some cognitive biases and analytics can show you that. But a lot of times your values drive what you're trying to produce on the field or on the court um, and within your organization. And so those are what's going to be your driving points, your uh, vision type statements. And then the analytics will help you to get there. And that's what Barcelona is trying to do. Their, their whole deal is they have a slogan called more than a club. Um, I've been to a Barcelona match. It is pretty phenomenal how how much this club has shaped the game of soccer and even beyond right now. Barcelona, it's different. It's not just a soccer club. They have five different professional sports. Uh, they have a basketball team as well, other sports. Um, they're 150,000 members, so it's not owned by anyone. The 150,000 members vote on who will run the club and all of that. Uh, they have 2,400 athletes. They have three 300 million social media fans. Their whole deal is they don't consider themselves, even though they are one of the richest clubs in the world, uh, they consider themselves one of the richest in talent and knowledge. And so their whole focus, their value is to increase talent and knowledge um, throughout their organization, throughout their players, throughout the game itself and beyond. And so 10 years ago, they started to develop a platform for where all of their data was going to be integrated. They used ultra wideband technology for 250 players that they keep 200 billion records of data recorded as a result. They monitor everything from nutrition to fatigue, distress to health, performance on the field. They have individual data. They have multiple data. They have things going on with the ball, what happens with spacing, all that kind of stuff. Just like in basketball, where off the ball makes a lot of difference and the whole spacing issues, it's the same within soccer. Johan Cruyff, one of the famous uh, soccer players who was at Barca years ago, he says it's been proven that players have three minutes of average time on the ball. What do you do with the other 87 minutes off the ball? And that's a lot of what they've tried to pioneer in, in the beautiful game and have been known for that as a result, the, all the positional data. And they have this whole algorithm library that he wanted to describe of how coaches use it and making it user-friendly um, for the players themselves and so on. And just phenomenal. They're kind of leading that whole charge within the analytics movement within soccer and just kind of showed you firsthand what actually is happening at some in, at the basketball level firsthand and with a soccer example. The next one I mentioned uh, that I that I went to again was another soccer panel. Uh, I won't go in depth into this one as much either. It's called the Beautiful Games Global Reach. You had the owner and chair of uh, AS Roma soccer team. You had the guy who's the exec chair of Relevant Sports who brings over all the preseason games in the U.S. with all these European clubs. Uh, you had the strategy knowledge director for RFC at Barcelona on this panel. And then you had Casey Keller, who was a former U.S. goalkeeper and U.S. studio analyst, does games, and Grant Wall, who writes for Sports Illustrated about the beautiful game. The only thing I want to say about this panel is it's interesting to me. Uh, Casey Keller made this point that MLS teams, because they were talking about the relation of MLS to Europe and you know how far behind they are and how they can catch up and all that kind of stuff. He played for different clubs, and he's talking about how he played for Fulham, who was founded in 1879. You had Tottenham, who was founded in 1882. You had Bayern Mönchengladbach, who was founded in 1900. Um, just all these teams have over a 100-year history or plus, and that's really what he was saying you have to make up 
within uh, here at the soccer level. Plus, you have the big four sports that they obviously have to catch up with. But soccer is in a good place. They're generating new young fans, um, first generation immigrant fans and the the youth. So it just will take a while and just that whole patience. And for me, it was interesting because it to me, it has so many parallels to where European basketball is. European basketball is the same way. It's trying to get a foothold over in Europe and they're developing new fans and fans from all different ethnicities. And it's just such an interesting journey that both of these sports are on, but on opposite sides of the globe. Um, basketball within Europe and beyond, and then soccer within the United States as a whole. And then the last panel that I went to for the day was called the Draft Day Analytics. Again, was an NBA panel. It was my second favorite panel of the entire weekend. Um, today is the even day, 2468 panel. Tomorrow with the odds. But this panel, it featured a solid moderator. It was Christina Douglas, who uh, is NBA deputy editor for ESPN.com. And she was interviewing uh, three top draft day experts. You had Jonathan Gavoni, who's the founder of Draft Express. He's now at ESPN. And you had Austin Ainge, who's the director of player personnel for the Boston Celtics. And you had Gerson Rosas, who's the executive VP of basketball operations for Houston. Uh, the first question she asked was, she listed off some names, Kyle Kuzma, Jason Tatum, Donovan Mitchell, Jalen Brown, Lori Markinen. She said they weren't all favored by analytic models, but were favored by old, old school scouting. And she says, what does that tell us? And Austin Ainge piped in and he kind of dispelled that whole rumor. He said, you know, everything really works together. He said, it's a myth, this whole supposed battle between scouting and analytics. He says medical is a huge deal. And a lot of these things, you have things like in-depth background analysis. Um, you have research that goes into the draft picks. And no matter what, whether it's scouting or analytics, everything's done systematically. Um, whether it's the eye test or whatever, there's a systematic way that they do it. And uh, Gerson chimed in. He said, I agree. At the end of the day, we, uh, we all have a lot of the same information. And it, this discussion between the scouts and the analytics guys is all really good. Um uh, Jonathan Givoni, he talked about how this was a humbling business and there's so many variables that go into whether or not you're successful in predicting if this guy's going to make it. The things they talked about, the health, the mental side, the character analysis, then all the analytics, the old school scouting, all this stuff comes into play. And still there's times where people, guys are in their mid 20s and they're still growing and developing in their game. So it's what you do is projecting all of this out. And that's a difficult thing to do. Um, he says that there is teams are definitely getting better at this, but there's information overload right now. And really the whole psychological metal medical background is the biggest area for improvement right now within teams. They were asked about how draft analysis has changed in the last 10 years. And Austin Ainge talked about how there's a lower risk tolerance for guys with character problems. Um, even so more so than guys who don't measure up analytically. Gerson was talking about how the draft is a three to four year decision. You have to look at it to gauge its success using that metric. So you can't, it's not even the first year, it's three to four years. And a lot of this draft prep stuff, again, has to do with the off the court stuff. And I like that there was an analogy Austin Ainge made. He talked about it's kind of like piecing together. You have all of these disparate clips of a player's life from character to, you know, wingspan to all this different stuff. And you're piecing them together kind of like a documentary movie putting together the potential of this player from all these different clips. And so it's marrying the science and the data and the background and all these, the health, all these different areas together. Um, and they, they talked about how it's, you're dealing with humans. Really a lot of it's not only just the humans, their potential, but how they fit into the system that you're coming in. Um, Jonathan Givoni, again, he talked about another dynamic on layered on top of that is you have the fact that the league is evolving all the time. Uh, he gave the example of Jahil Okafor, who at 15 years old, as a potential back-to-the-basket center, he looked perfect for the NBA back then. But since then, the NBA has changed so much that he doesn't have near as much value, even though his potential is still great as far as on the offensive end. Um, so you got to also, on top of all of this, of the other factors I mentioned, you have to project where the NBA is headed as a whole when trying to scout these picks. Christina asked the question, what stats translate to success in the NBA today? The uh, Gerson talked about the values of bigs, having skills and an outside shot is huge. 
but it's also dependent on, again, the philosophy of the team internally. So he talked about how they like to play European style ball. Uh, five years ago, P, a player like PJ Tucker wouldn't have fit this prototype they were playing, but now he's invaluable to a team like theirs. And he says that good teams are also they're ahead of the curve when it comes to NBA trends. So they're kind of setting the trends themselves. Jonathan Giovanni talked about the challenge of college ball is sometimes you have players like Kyle Kuzma, who's not used in the system the way that he's going to be used in the pros. And so you have to just you're, you're projecting what will he be like in it, in the system that we're going to use him in. And Austin Ainge, he followed that up with giving an example of Jason Tatum. He said, you know, Tatum got injured at Duke. He started slow. He wasn't shooting great from the three at college. Lots of people were calling him, you know, draft quote, draft experts were calling him a ISO mid range player. But we saw that he was a good free throw shooter, which is free throws are the best indicator of your shot as a whole. They saw that his mechanics were good. They got him in two non-contact private shooting sessions. He didn't have anyone on him, but he put up close to 300 threes and he made almost all of them, according to Ainge. Um, so we had to weigh that. Can this guy hit the three in our system? At the time uh, when this panel was going on, Tatum was shooting over 40% from the three this year as a pro, which is phenomenal. If you follow three-point percentage in the NBA, he also said same thing, Jalen Brown. He checked all the boxes for psychological tools, character stuff, but the system he was in in Cal with multiple bigs, spacing issues, all that kind of stuff, it wasn't a great representation of uh, Jalen's potential. And they've ac- actually done really well with both of those guys, the Celtics have, in um, making that call. The Gerson talked about how the limited sample size, sizes is tough to work with. Uh, even with scouting Euro or college ball, because obviously the college coaches, the Euro coaches, their job is to win the game, not to put their player in the best potential light that they could be in. They were asked about the one and done rule. Jonathan Giovanni talked about he's not looking forward to it personally. Again, he says it's the whole maturation deal of high schoolers. It's so much tougher to call it on these guys. And he says the teams he's talked to aren't necessarily in favor of the one and done rule either. As always, Gerson said, you know, you have to ta- attempt to get the most information you can. So we'll be tracking individuals in person a little earlier if that happens. They were asking about foreign leagues and how do you analyze data in that. He said the best way, um, they talked about the best way many times is in the FIBA competitions because the kids are playing against kids their own age and you connect the dots analytically to the scouting data you have. And if you have good processes in place, that will help to bring out the best Uh, foreign kids nowadays and a lot of NBA teams have this system in place it does you've got to watch out because international leagues they change quickly due to economic factors Um, Austin Ainge cited the Italian league going down drastically because of economic factors so you have to really know what these leagues are known for and and have scouts that are uh, specific to those leagues themselves he said you have a lot of players Gerson Rosas was talking about how you'll have a lot of players high on draft boards but this is another variable and factor that goes into it. They may be red flagged because of some kind of health risk. And it all depends. All 30 teams have different metrics they use to gauge the risk of health within a player. And um, so the GM even may have something different from the owner. And the whole risk approach to handling injuries is a huge reason why some of these guys end up getting drafted later or because of the background or character or psychological or whatever. Um, they have similar draft boards when it comes to the analytics and their basketball potential, but all the other factors that go into it make um, for these draft boards coming out different actually on draft night. They asked if there was one piece of data that didn't exist for draft prep, which that you wish you had, which would it, what would it be? Givoni talked about how data accurately measures the mental stuff, what makes them tick. He said, if we had better information on that, that would be a huge help in this analyzing because that's the toughest part of our business. Gerson reinforced that. He said, better data for the psychological and mental piece. And then they kind of ended the whole deal with asking what their favorite draft day moments were. He says, uh, Gerson was talking about how it's hard. You've been studying these guys for four to six years. You also have this intensive period leading up to the draft three months before the draft where you spend 16 hours a day getting ready and then you draft your guy and you get your guy. He says, that's probably the the best feeling I have. Austin says it's tough to be ecstatic on draft day because even if you get the guy you want, the truth is you won't know um, for several years whether or not uh, it was a good pick or not. So there's no instant gratification with all of this. Gerson also 
uh, address the question, the age old question of do you draft for need or do you draft by best player? Um, he says a lot of times it's just a stage the team is currently at. If you're still a team that's figuring out your core and then drafting four power forwards at one time, that's okay to draft. Uh, Jonathan Giovanni talked about how the NBA is a forward wing league, but it will be interesting to see, um, even though it is that type of league last year, between positions 10 and number 30 on the draft boards, there was a lot of centers and fours and fives taken. Um, will that happen again this year? We know at the top of the draft there will be some bigs taken, but they have – uh, the flexibility to be able to guard off switches and the agility and all that kind of stuff. But what's the trend going to be with that, with the bigs? The last question they ask is what, what, what was the next big trend that's going to happen in the NBA? Gerson felt like half core D is going to catch up with uh, where offenses are in this league. And Austin Ainge made an interesting point. He said, it's really, you know, it's the dominant players who come into the league, people like Shaq and stuff and all those players who come into the league that set the trends but he said, if I were predicted, I would say it's it's the whole bigs who can switch. That's the next big trend, which we will see in the 2018 draft. So there you have it. It's day one. Nuggets from the MIT Sloan Sports Conference. I know uh, vets of the conference, some of this stuff may seem like old hat. But for a newbie like myself, it was phenomenal to hear all these various strains of thoughts, ideas, analytical tools, historical context, all talked about um, from various viewpoints and angles. And then to undertake the task of trying to synthesize all this information into the knowledge that I already have, it just, it was an exhilarating experience. It was, uh, I call it a Disneyland for basketball nerds, uh, an unforgettable conference. If you weren't able to go um, and you're listening to this pod, the next best thing is to get onto the 42 Analytics YouTube channel and to check out some of these panels that I talked about to give you an appetizer for. The crazy thing is, is this conference only got better from day one to day two. Um, it was a legit step up and just it took it to a whole nother level for me on day two. And later on this weekend, we'll be putting out another pod and it'll all be about day two of the conference. If you want to dig into anything deeper into uh, hoops related subjects that I've talked about, again, I would say go to the Shades of Orange website, shadesoforange.us. Check it out because we have all this stuff. We have various curated pieces on this conference itself. And um, just check us out. Thanks again for taking the time to listen. Until next time, take care.